Welcome back to the Camloops Alliance Church Podcast. This week, Chris interviews Joan Schultz. Joan is a follower of Jesus and a registered psychologist who has been practicing for more than 25 years. She specializes in marriage and family concerns. She's realistic, practical, and well-educated to bring some great insight on how you can improve your marriage and family during this global crisis. Enjoy the conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Caleb's Alliance Church Podcast. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor of the church. And uh, in this crazy time, we just are wanting to do whatever we can to help you and equip you in all spheres of your life, marriage, family, theology. So uh, we launched this podcast a few weeks ago and are just getting really great engagement. So thank you for tuning in. If you find this helpful, we also would love it if you shared it and uh, shared it with your friends, your families by sending them the link and just letting people know about what we are trying to do uh, through the podcast. So this episode, really, really grateful, really excited to have Joan Schultz on with us. Um, Joan and I, well, Joan's family and I kind of go way back through different means. Uh, So Joan, thank you so much for being a part of uh, our podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm just delighted to be here with you this afternoon. So good. Um, you know, Joan, one of the reasons why I thought of you was because, and I don't even know if you remember this, but this was when I was leading Ethos Young Adults and I was working with your son, Steve, and we brought you in to talk about abuse in relationships. I don't even know if you remember that, but I was thinking about this podcast and about how impactful that session that you led was. And I thought Joan would be amazing to have on the podcast. And so um, just so grateful that you'd spend time with us today. Well, I'm glad to do it. I'm glad to help in any way. This is a challenging time for all of us, everyone, and more more challenging for some, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, Joan, uh, just why don't you introduce yourself? I just, you know, tell the listener uh, who you are, education, family, career, hobbies, just kind of bring us into who, who you are. Okay. Um, I'm a registered psychologist in the province of BC, so I have the education that goes along with that. Um, I've been counseling individuals, couples, families for, hate to say it, but it's close to 30 years now. And um, I can't be 29 anymore, I guess. Um, I, I deal with everything from anxiety and depression to all kinds of relationship difficulties, um, including marriages, family life, parenting, um, business mediation as well, um, as well as, as dealing with loss and trauma recovery for individuals too. So um, I've also enjoyed teaching in the community. Um, I do workshops, um, retreats, and conferences, and I've taught classes at a couple of universities as well, and I love working with the students. So in terms of my family life, I've been married for a very long time um, to an amazing man, and we have four adult children. Our three sons are engaged in the professions of educating, and our daughter is in the legal field. And we have two beautiful daughters-in-law and one very smart, um, gifted, of course, grandchild. Um, so I feel really blessed to have these roles in my life, my, as a wife and as a mom and as a grandmother. And I really feel privileged to be involved in my community, serving people that I come to know. Um, In terms of doing some things in my spare time, um, I love being outdoors, love being with my family and with my friends and doing some walking or hiking and cycling. And if we get a chance to see parts of the world as well, 
So. Fantastic. Yeah. So again, just for the listener, um, I, I've known the Schultz family for, I mean, I think it was 2010 when I started at Coquitlam Alliance. Um, my wife, Krista, has known the Schultz family for way longer than that. Actually, Daryl, your husband, baptized Krista it, like in 2000 or something like that. So uh, there's been a, just a lot of like family interaction. I worked with both of your sons uh, doing doing ministry for a season. Um, so just a great, great family connection. Uh, and it's just so good that we can be able to hopefully help people with this conversation. I sure hope so, Chris. Thank That's you for the great. opportunity. Of course. Um, so you talked about, you know, nearly 30 years, Joan, that's fantastic in, in just helping and being in the, the the real life moments and situations and histories of people. So what is it about your practice? What's kept you going for 30 years? Give us a glimpse into your passion and your just desire to help people. Well, one of the things I really love to do, Chris, is I, I love and I still love after all this time, I love meeting with people one on one. And of course, in the times of COVID, this has all changed now. Um, we've moved to telepsychology. So I meet with my clients now um, via video or, or by phone if they prefer. And um, even that seems to be it seems to be working out okay. People just we just love to connect. And I I think some of them are even finding that they want to continue the telepsychology, you know, once we all get back together to normal life again. Um, I, I enjoy um, being with the people. I love hearing their stories about how they came to be at the place they are. Um, I also love hearing what they hope or had hoped their life would be like and what their strengths and successes are and then what keeps them from moving forward because they usually don't come to see me unless they're struggling with something or stuck in some way. So I, I just consider it a real privilege that People allow me to hear their story, um, maybe to encourage them to try some new things that can provoke change or inspire healing um, or even transform their own image of themselves or perspective of, of themselves. And um, what I really um, love towards the end of my work with an individual is hearing that they think they've got something important to contribute to the people around them. Mm. Yeah, for that inner healing to being able to help others. Exactly. Exactly. That's cool. Um, You know, Joan, as as you've mentioned a few times, we're in the midst of a global pandemic with COVID-19 and and the the intersection of of that reality and how it's changed people's lives, changed our world. Um, And and your work with with people and especially marriages, I think, is is the the topic of of this this podcast. Um, This unique season we're living in has created unique challenges and stressors for families and marriages that we have never had to come this close to or, or be brought close to in this way. So there's there's new routines that people are having to get used to. There's new opportunities for intimacy. So, you know, with some people and families and marriages, it's a great opportunity to have more, more connection, but also for, for conflict as well. So in your practice right now, are you seeing any effects that this pandemic has created for marriages and families? Oh, most definitely. So um, if you if you're in a marriage that's that's already struggling and then you have two people that all of a sudden they have to work from home, their parents, and they've got to move everything that they've been doing in an outside 
resorts and outside office. They've got to move it all home. They've got to find two separate workspaces. They they have to parent their children. They have to cook meals and provide nutritionally for the family. They've got to buy groceries. They've got to do laundry. Um, you've really got to set up for some intense interaction. And because you're so close to each other, the small irritations become um, very constant. And so the frustrations grow. And one one person often thinks they're doing more than the other. And so the conflict begins. And there's often a lot of, of um, real frustrated feelings that get expressed that wouldn't be expressed otherwise. So that's just what happens in you know, in a typical family that's struggling with some of the changes that that are going on. And then you've got the families that um, with job loss, perhaps, or reduced um, job, they've got a loss of income, and they're really struggling like they never have before just to make ends meet. Um, and then you've also got families that are intergenerational. They've got a, perhaps somebody older or older grandparents living in the home. And then there's younger children as well. And the parents are trying to earn a living and provide um, care for people at both ends of the age spectrum, as, as well as all the fatigue and the constraints that come just from being socially isolated. So those are some of the demands, um, not nearly all of them, but that's some of the demands that, that I'm beginning to see more and more of. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, this moment has, um, it's just, it's the pressure cooker has been turned up. And so the, the, kind of the little issues that you've been able to um, forget or deal with, you know, are now way more, way more maximized than ever before. And, and I think, I think that's true uh, of of every family in in different ways. Um, They've been impacted by it. You know, I was reading uh, a few weeks ago, the financial times released an article called strain of life under lockdown sparks divorce surge in China. So that caught my attention as as I was thinking about, um, uh, you know, my time with you, Uh, the wife of one of these impacted marriages. She said, the epidemic gave me a chance to make up my mind. So, you know, we're seeing, and and I've read more articles even since this one, just the impact of um, unhealthy marriages or marriages that are struggling. um, Really, this is, uh, a fork in the road for for marriages. They're saying, I can't do it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. All that sort of stuff. So my, my, I'm curious about what the connection here between this this time spent together and the realization that this person had to end to end their marriage. Because obviously this is this is more time, more um, more interaction is saying, okay, I'm I'm out. So help me with that connection. Well, you know, that's a really interesting article. Um, I, I read that as well. It states that two-thirds of the legal divorce filings in recent weeks in China are related to the quarantine's pressures. And the interesting about about what's happening in China right now, for the women that are requesting a divorce, it is not an easy thing to be divorced because they typically earn less than their husband. Um, they're usually given custody of their children and the courts often refuse alimony requests. So mm. when they divorce, they move into real financial hardship. 
So that really tells you the level of desperation that these women are facing. But, you know, we're having that in BC as well. And there have been um, some really good articles in the Vancouver Sun lately that talk about what the current crisis is doing, um, especially to men who are maybe the providers of the home. Um, it's really putting men under pressure. John Izzo wrote a great article um, where he talks about just what it's doing to men, he's saying that because men are often less able to talk about emotional challenges, they might be less resilient in the face of various life stressors, and they don't have the support systems that women do. And so they're more likely to translate emotional difficulty into violent acts, into substance abuse, um, into, you know, belligerent behavior. And when you Put all this into the pressure cooker of lost jobs, of economic hardship, of social isolation, and kind of loss of your own identity. This has dramatic consequences. So we're seeing that the increased pressure of this crisis, it weighs heavily on those who are highly stressed and quite isolated and suffering financial hardship. So if the anger and despair is taken out on the spouse, eventually she or he, it's not always the woman, um, that is the victim, but they might say enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, as they say, the struggle is real, and I think I think that the struggle uh, for people in Kamloops, for people in Vancouver, for people in China, it, is this is what happens when um, one stress is added onto another, especially as if you enter or if you were living before this crisis with not a lot of financial margin, with not a lot of relational health or good practices. Uh, this is all being exposed. Um, Joan, as I as I was preparing for our time together, um, I read so a few articles that you have written, some really, really helpful articles. Uh, and in one of the articles, you, you said that um, messing up a marriage, as, as we think about the connection here is, is divorce and the breakdown of marriage. Um, you've written here that um, messing up a marriage doesn't happen overnight. You have to work at it. Uh, I thought that was interesting. What, what do you mean by that? Um, well, that was a little bit tongue in cheek, but um, I was thinking of, you know, typically a, long, a young couple who get married, we'd call them um, Sally and Joe, let's say. They get married and they look forward to setting up their own home together, being able to spend all their time together. They establish their own lifestyles. Maybe they're looking forward to raising a family together. And um, of course, they know that they're unconditionally supported by their undying love for each other. That's how they envision their marriage starting. And, and usually the reality that follows doesn't mean their, their assumptions um, or their assumed expectations. So over time, you know, w- the work struggle set in, they've, they've got bills to pay, they've got the house to clean, and they, they might become a little bit disillusioned about this new reality. They might blame the other for their own unhappiness. And often what they don't realize is that they've accumulated some very poor relational habits <laughs> that caused them actually to sabotage their own habit, happiness in their marriage. So if I were to teach a class, hopefully never, but if I were to teach a class on how to sabotage your marriage, <laughs> based on my observations over quite a few years, it would look like this. I would talk about a few things, and the first one would be to take your spouse for granted. So you, you're not polite to them anymore. You don't thank them anymore. You don't acknowledge them when they come home from work or when you've been apart. You you just take them for granted. They're there. So what? The second thing would be to be quite satisfied with complacency. So you don't expect very much from your relationship. 
You don't bother talking about how you could have more fun together. And you don't bother talking on a deeper level to each other. You just let yourself become quite apathetic. And then being negative doesn't help either. So being cynical, expressing discontent and negativity at every opportunity, um, not making any effort to overcome your irritableness or your grumpiness in the morning. Um, and you assume the worst of everybody and then you let your spouse know that as well. So being unhappy is kind of a more of a common thing to do. You're comfortable with that person. So you allow yourself to be unhappy. One of the interesting things, just as an aside here, um, in John Gottman's studies of marriages, he observed that there's, there's this balance, this perfect ratio between positive and negativity. And he said, when there are five times as many positive comments as negative, he can predict that that marriage will be stable over time. So that's five positives to one negative. And in many relationships, it's exactly the opposite. There's a, few, there's a few more things that can sabotage a relationship. Misplaced priorities. You know, if your money and time goes to everything but your spouse, they pretty soon get the picture that they're not a priority. Yeah, of um, course. If you speak demeaningly, one of the worst things that we can do to our spouse is to disparage them in front of others. That's humiliating, humiliating and it actually causes a real loss of trust in your spouse. And also allowing secrets and little white lies. So we need to know that lies are seldom little and they're never white. Um, <laughs> so any patterns of secretness or any patterns of deceit that we think doesn't really affect the relationship or it doesn't really matter, they actually do. When our spouse finds out that there are patterns of, of being untrustworthy, that really affects a relationship negatively. And the last thing might be just to allow domestic chaos to reign. Mm. So it's just being messy and not cleaning up after yourself and especially not cleaning up after anybody else. So it's when one or even both parties don't think it's their responsibility to make their home an orderly place to live in. That sometimes contributes to, to real difficulty in the marriage as well. Mm. Yeah, I think I think there's um there's something about like the power of habit. You know, we have our own personal yeah. habits yeah. that that lead to health or or not. And there's also relational habits that over time will yield a, a happy, you know, functioning marriage or not. And and I, I liked what you're getting at that, you know, it is tongue in cheek, but it doesn't happen overnight. You you do have to work at it. And I think I think there is opportunity, and this is where we're going to get to, but there is opportunity to change those habits, to have best practices, to not take your spouse for granted and be able to, to, you know, shift your marriage from, from dysfunction or, or not, not being healthy to, to a place of, of health. So that was really helpful, Joan, just kind of naming some of those things that, that would sabotage a marriage. That's really good. Um, maybe as we continue down kind of this trail, as you have worked with, you know, countless uh, amounts of couples, what would be some signs that a marriage is in trouble? And you've, you've mentioned a few of those even in that list, but is there anything there that you'd want to add? Um, again, to draw on some of John Gottman's work in his, in his, um, labs that he, he actually hire gets couples, students that volunteer that are married, newlywed couples in this particular one, one study um, to, to observe these couples and find out how, how they get along and especially how they conflict. And is that a predictor of divorce? 
and he actually has been able to reliably predict divorce based on how many of these young couples begin to argue and conflict. Mm-hmm. And one of the most telling ways that they are on their way to not resolving things long term is what he calls a harsh startup. So that's when there is a difference of opinion, um, possibly moving into a conflict. Both of these parties are very harsh with each other. They raise their voices, they're demeaning, they might yell at each other. They don't give the other person a chance to interject or to have their opinion being heard. So that's really an important thing to remember about conflict is that we don't want to start in that way because that's really a negative predictor. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also some other factors that he mentions, I think, that are really important to mention, too. And one is constant criticism of the other person. It's not just you forgot to take out the garbage this morning. It's you always forget to take out the garbage. You never help out. So it's really saying what that person's identity is more than just episodic criticism. Mm. contempt is another is another thing that is a predictor of of real trouble so that's when one party thinks that they're superior over the other um they it's really a form of disrespect and so it might be conveyed through mock mockery or sarcasm or eye rolling or um big size when the other person says something um and probably the most potent of all is is what he terms as stonewalling And this is really the most troublesome because what it reflects is a disengagement from the relationship. One person has just completely disengaged. They are not participating anymore. They've closed themselves off both communication wise, but also emotionally from the other person. So, and I would say another sign of trouble is also when a couple looks back and they don't remember any of the fun that they had. They don't remember Mm. the good times, you know, instead all the memories that they have are things where the other person um, wronged them in some way or things couldn't could have been better, but they weren't. And it's the other person's fault. It's building that narrative over time, right? Another file in the case, another file in the case. And I I think that even pastorally, as I've sat down with couples, you know, who are who are struggling in their marriage, that stonewalling thing is is concerning. And I I like that that language that you brought to because I've seen that where people just shut down. And it's like if you actually want to recover or reemerge from from this situation, you, you cannot you cannot stonewall the other person because it takes two in a marriage in order to to recover and gain health again. That's so um, true. Yeah. As um, you know, we've kind of gone down this like, you know, difficulty and divorce and struggle and pandemic and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we're going to switch the conversation here. But just before we do, um, as, as I, I've interacted with couples, oftentimes, like, you know, as a pastor, I'm not trained in the same way as you are. And so there's there's times where I just kind of put my hand up and say, this is above my pay grade. You should really sit down with somebody who has extra care, extra education, more tools in the toolbox than I do. And, and sometimes um, there has been one or both saying, I don't want to go to counseling. That's not what I want to do. So for couples who are struggling right now, listening, tuning in, but they're hesitant to go to, go to counseling, I, for me, I just want to break down some of those walls for them. So what would you say that the purpose 
your purposes in helping marriage? What help can can you or people like you in your field? Uh, and what does what counseling offer? Because maybe that maybe this conversation will help people to say, you know what? No, we are going to go. We are going to invest into our marriage in this way. So I think one of the most important things in terms of turning a marriage around is, first of all, to recognize that, yes, we need to turn this around, that we actually right. are having problems. Yeah. So that's, so it does take that decision and it does take two people coming and or being willing to talk about it. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll just put a... Um, a little caveat on that because sometimes it is one person coming first and saying, you know, our marriage is in trouble. What can I do about it? And, and often by talking with them, they can change aspects of their behavior, which created an environment, which is positive enough for the other person to have a taste of a better relationship and want to come in and talk about it. So, so that can be a um, kind of a backdoor approach that, that is helpful. But, when I first talk to couples, I like to hear about um, how they met, what attracted them to each other. I like to hear their story. I like to hear what's working. So they've made it this far. So they must have been doing some things that are working. Um, right. And so that means they've got strengths. And maybe those strengths are, are hidden right now, but they are still there. And they've mm -hmm. got successes. And those are still there as well. And we can build on those. Um, then we get to the point where we look at, okay, what's not working? And, you know, it's really quite a simple start. And the, the way, the analogy that I like to use is that of a wheelbarrow. You know, if you, if you have a one-handed wheelbarrow, you don't really get anywhere with it. It always swerves and dumps out its load. So you need a two, two hands on that wheelbarrow, just like you need two partners in a marriage in order to actually push it forward. So I would say, um, my purpose in counseling is not to blame one person or another. There's always a set of dynamics in place that um, might be a pattern that cause problems and difficulties. Once that's recognized, we can turn that around. And I see the, my purpose as helping a couple find the best ways to create a really strong team together. Um, a team where they rely on each other as unique people with their unique gifts and talents. And so it's really a process of appreciating what they have and building on it rather than negating what they don't have. I think that's helpful because, you know, sometimes the, um, uh, the myth of counseling is that, you know, it's a big blame session and then two people gang up on the one person and that's it. So I think, I think it's helpful for, for the listener or people who are in marriages uh, that are struggling to say, it's actually not like that. The whole thing is to move you both forward. And, and I, I hope that maybe even couples listening in will, extend themselves and open themselves up rather to, to somebody like yourself who can offer just a third party, uh, objective, professional, caring opinion that can help them forward. Uh, as we move on here in the conversation, Joan, um, you talked about, uh, and, and even Gottman, uh, Gottman's research you just mentioned, the uh, the whole thing of conflict. And um, when you get married, you just assume it's going to be a part of it. You have two people living in one house, different family of origins, different stories, 
all that sort of stuff. So what, what are some ways that couples could, you know, fight right or do conflict in a healthy way? Um, what, what have you seen? What do you advise when it comes to here's how you actually do it? And, and maybe if you can add in, why is it so hard for us to do conflict? Well, okay. Those are good questions. First of all, let me say that um, there's a lot I could say here, and I definitely won't have enough time. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> but um, when you say, why do we avoid it? That's a really good question. And um, I like the first sentence of Scott Peck's book, um, The Road Less Traveled. And it's only three words. And he says, life is difficult. And then he goes on to say that life is a series of problems and our natural tendency is to want to avoid problems rather than face them head on. And he says this tendency to avoid problems rather than face them is kind of the foundation of all the emotional suffering that can bring on mental illness. So he defines mental health as being willing to face one's problems head on and grow in spite of them. So some of us will go to extraordinary lengths to avoid problems and suffering and end up being stuck in our lives because when we avoid that legitimate suffering, we also avoid growing. So personal growth is that gain that we receive from pain when problems are faced with the discipline and the perseverance that we need in order to resolve them. So um, many people that that come to me come and they finally come after a sense of desperation to figure out some of their conflicts and what to do about them. So how do we bring up frustrations and differences with each other to begin with? Well, I think, again, there's that decision to recognize that we're having trouble and and maybe I need to do something about it. So if if you've been having difficulty communicating with each other and conflict and bickering, has become the norm for your relationship. The negatives outweigh the positives. So make a commitment to create some new patterns of of resolving differences. You might set a goal for yourself, for your own self, um, with some specifics in your own behavior that you want to change when you start to get into conflict. Maybe it's something like, you know, I'm going to step back and not get right into it when I'm already so angry. Or it might be, I am not going to raise my voice or I'm not going to um, call names. But one of the things that's really important is to be able to calm ourselves. So even practice calming ourselves daily if we have a problem with temper. Um, Mm. Taking a time out when the conflict heats up and having a cue system with your spouse so that you kind of do a time out when you know you're getting too intense and you need to step back. And probably most important is just to take responsibility for your own behavior. Um, and talk with the other person about some some experimentation. We're going to try some new ways to solve problems because this has not been working for us. So go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, it's really helpful to know what your trouble spots are. You know, every couple has their own issues. Sometimes it's too much time with the in-laws. Sometimes it's labor at home, the division of labor, who does what. Sometimes it's financial issues. But if we know that there's triggering issues that have been in place for quite a long time, it's, it's helpful to actually set a time to say, you know, let's talk about that. Let's mm. talk about that Thursday night at 730. 
And when we sit down, let's hear from each other. You know, what do you think the problem is? And why do you think it's a problem for us? And then brainstorm for what we can do about it. Is there an experiment that we can try? Can we try to do something differently and see if that works? We need to give ourselves a lot more flexibility um, than we usually do when it comes to our, our touchy spots. Yeah, I think I, I, I tell people, you know, before I officiate weddings, I say, I say, if you don't like change, you, you won't like marriage because <laughs> marriage forces you to change. Yeah. And so I think there's, you have to look at yourself as malleable. Like there are things in my current life that, that when I get married or because of marriage will have to change. And it's that perspective that, that in, in my pastoral world, um, really for me is a good predictor of, of marriage health is people be, being able to go in and, and take ownership of their behavior, take ownership of their, the way that they do conflict, whether it's their conflict avoidant or they love conflict, whatever that looks like. Uh, and, and that, that being able to change is huge. I think another, another piece of, of conflict that's huge is forgiveness. That's what conflict is. There's, there's, I'm sorry. Um, I, I wronged you in this way, or I hurt you. And as we think about, you know, for, for us who follow Jesus, um, that's a part of our worldview. It's actually at the the core is this idea of forgiveness, which is why we celebrated Easter last weekend is this idea of forgiveness. So how does the forgiveness that we receive from Jesus impact the way that we extend forgiveness to others, especially when it comes to, to marriage? John, what, what, what's your insight there? So as you've said, Chris, we've just come through the Easter season, which is the most important day in the Christian church. Jesus Christ demonstrated by his death on the cross the extent of his sacrificial love for mankind. And despite the torture and the ridicule he endured at the hands of his tormentors, he still prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His death was the ultimate act of grace bridging man to God. And it was a demonstration of God's unconditional love for us. There's, there's so much more that could be said about this, but I just want to address it very simply. So in marriage, too, we need to think of our relationship in self-sacrificial terms. It's a relationship where we love unconditionally and we extend grace where it's not deserved. So if, if we've experienced that in a marriage, it's, it is a truly amazing, wonderful thing. Mike Mason has written a great book um, entitled The Mystery of Marriage. And he was uh, a man, um, actually a formerly a monk who got married later in life. And I love one of the paragraphs that he's written about what marriage is. He said, he never considered that in getting married, one espouse is not an institution, but a person, not a narrowness, but an unimaginable breadth of possibility. For a person is the single most limitless entity in creation. And if there's anything that's even more unlimited and unrestrained than one person, it's two people together. But two people together means one person changed, not a simple matter. A 30-year-old man is like a densely populated city. Nothing new can be built in its heart without something being torn down. So a good marriage is one where the question is not... What can I get out of it? But it's what can I give? And the most successful marriage is a marriage of sacrificial love where forgiveness is often sought and it's freely given. That's powerful. It's beautiful. What what, what book was that again? That's Mike Mason's book entitled The Mystery of Marriage. Thank you. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, for, for couples in order to really flourish in their marriage, you have to have some sense of forgiveness in the, in the fact that I've been forgiven. If this is true, that God has forgiven me by Jesus, I, I don't hoard that forgiveness, but yet ex- extend that out. And so I think that's a good transition point, Joan, as we, as we kind of think about best practices for moving forward. So we started with uh, the, the pandemic and the challenge of, of this season. It talked about kind of, okay, now conflict a little bit. Now, how do we get out of it? So um, another article that, uh, that you wrote, What Makes a Marriage Good? You talked about some essential ingredients, you said, uh, to good marriages. What, what are some of those things? And I guess a lot of it would be the opposite of what makes a bad marriage. But I think it's helpful to name those things and for you as a listener to be thinking, do I have those in my life, in my marriage? And for those who are single tuning in, I think now is the time to be thinking, are you going to be able to be that type of person to contribute to these healthy ingredients in a marriage? So can you lead us through that, Joan? Yeah, I'd, I'd be really glad to. This is this is the stuff I really like is really focusing in on, on the positives and what we can do differently. So I think all of us are aware when we do see a healthy marriage around us, when we do see um, a couple that are, are really exemplifying what we consider a happy marriage to be. And some of these common traits are things like um, when it comes to criticism, it's given very sparingly. And when it is given, it's given with gentleness. And um, when criticism is given, it's given at the appropriate time as well, not in front of people. And it's given when that person is able to receive it. And it's given very carefully. Also, Time is set aside to listen carefully to the other person's feelings and reactions, to their disappointments, to their frustrations, to their triumphs. It's a real active listening. It's where you put all distractions aside. It's where you're not making little rebuttals in your own mind um, of what you're going to say to negate what they've said. Um, It's the kind of listening that really moves two people into a real closeness and, and emotional intimacy. And there's also an other-centeredness in the marriage. We've talked about that with the sacrificial love, but it's a really deep respect for the other person. And it's an attitude of wanting what's best for that person and for the family together, not just what's best for me. Decisions are made through consultation. They're not made unilaterally. And both people are considered equal contributors and very important in coming to the decision that will affect the two of them and the family life together. There's also a lot of humor and laughter. I might even put that at the top of the list. I think that's so important. Yeah, Um, absolutely. There's meaningful, affectionate touch. Um, Respect is always conveyed through this physical touch. Um, No one party demands more affection or communication than the other is willing to give. So it's always respectful Um, and playful too. That's a good thing. Commitments, when they're made, they're followed through on. So you know that if that person promises to do something, you know that they are going to do their utmost to try and fulfill what they've said they do. Mm-hmm. And the, the last thing that I might say is that in the truly great marriages, I think that both people commit to being the best they can be within themselves, for themselves, for each other, for their family, for God, for their community. They strive to be that kind of a person. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, I think for the listener, you know, as Joan just talked about those ingredients, it may be even a helpful practice for you just to stop the podcast right here and talk through those things. Is that present in our marriage? How do I improve on that? And be curious about each other and your marriage as, as uh, Joan has really, really in, in a great way, succinctly um, talked about, you know, some healthy practices in, in marriages. Um, Joan, um, as we land the plane here, the last few questions, the Bible talks about being one flesh. You know, that's in Genesis chapter two. You know, what, what resonated with me uh, as we talked about kind of the, the negative things or the destructive practices, you talked about, you know, uh, white lies or the small kind of hidden things. Um, the Bible does talk about being one flesh. What does that mean when it comes to transparency and honesty and openness in a marriage. Like, what do you what do you take that to mean, and how does that play itself out in marriage? So, when we when we look at that portion of scripture, the term "one flesh" um, in the Genesis account of the creation of Eve, um, she was created from a rib in Adam's side as he slept, and then he recognized that Eve was a part of him, so that they were in fact one flesh. So the term one flesh means that just as our bodies are one entity and can't be divided into pieces. So God's intent for marriage, two people together, is that it can't be divided. What happens when transparency and honesty and openness is lost in a relationship? It actually splits the relationship apart. It may not happen immediately, not like a bolt of lightning, but it might happen um, almost imperceptibly over time as more and more deceit or dishonesty or um, withholding from the other person begins to take place. So true intimacy, emotional intimacy has a lot to do with physical intimacy as well. So true intimacy, emotional intimacy begins with listening and understanding and being honest and being transparent to the place that where you are very vulnerable with the other person. So when we're able to be that vulnerable and have the other person know our faults, our shortcomings, know everything about us, but we're still unconditionally loved and accepted, that's the bridge of emotional connection that really can't be broken um, as it's being built and as it's kept on being built. So that's real intimacy. And then that reflects into physical intimacy or sexual intimacy, which is just a reflection where both of that emotional connection where both people know that they're safe and they're cherished by the other person. Yeah. And, and, you know, the books that I've read on, on this um, is that if, if you want a good, you know, sex life in your marriage, it starts with being a good communicator and, yeah. and build and building those bridges. So this one flesh often, you know, you think of flesh being a physical thing, but, but what the Bible is saying and what you, what you've, what you've mentioned too, is that it's, it's a, it's a union of everything. It's, it's physical, it's mental, it's spiritual, it's emotional. And I think that's, that's the vision of a Christian marriage is that one fleshness of of um of these people in the marriage uh being able to enjoy marriage not just seeing it as a drudgery or as but to have a playful marriage to be friends with your spouse to be able to have this one fleshness and to be in to enjoy the good gift of life together that god's given us john as as we as we finish off here um what are some of the unique characteristics of a christian marriage maybe even a definition that you have of a christian marriage and how, how does that how does that work well, um, I would define a Christian marriage 
as two people aspiring, and that's a key word, to live and love in a sacrificial way, exemplifying the grace and unconditional love that we ourselves have received from God. So the key characteristics of a Christian marriage are loving sacrificially, exemplifying God's grace, and having unconditional love. So we can aspire to live this out, but I don't know anybody who has perfectly. I don't know anybody who has a perfect marriage because I don't know anybody who's perfect. We're all broken in one way or another. And a a Christian marriage in actuality is just simply two people together living imperfect lives in a broken world, but trying to do so in a manner that honors God. I, I, what, what resonates is the, the whole idea of grace, you know, grace for each other, grace for ourselves and the grace that we've received um, with that as a foundation uh, I, for me being being married. I, I don't know where we would be without that unconditional love, service and grace. So um, maybe just as kind of next steps for people here, Joan, if, if we have people listening, if couples are wanting more, are there any resources, places, people, books that you would point them to, even some exercise or exercises that you would say, hey, start here, just just a, one step forward in this um, in this direction. Anything that you would you would recommend? I, I'd maybe start off with a couple of books or a few books, actually. Um, one that I've recommended um, through through our talk here this afternoon is John Gottman's book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And in that book, as you read through it, um, he also gives some exercises for couples to to improve their communication. So that's a really good start. He's also written another book with Nan Silver on um, called What Makes Love Last? And that's an excellent resource as well. Many people know the books by Gary Chapman, Five Love, Love Languages and Things I Wish I Had Known Before I Got Married. And both Gary Chapman and John Gottman and his wife have an online presence. They've done lectures and they're available on YouTube. So that's a really easy way to access those resources. And there's also a number of workshops, marriage retreats and workshops um, that follow the John Gottman kind of marriage approach that are held in the lower mainland. And you can just Google those and those are available to um, just about anybody. I think that wants to sign up and, I think because there's such an increase of anxiety and depression during these days right now, I think I would be remiss if I didn't um, recommend a couple of online sources or resources for people. Uh, One is a bounce back program. It's bounce back BC. It's available online. Um, You used to have to have a doctor's prescription for it, and now you can just access it easily. And it helps with mild to moderate depression for youth and adults. And there's also an online program called Anxiety BC that addresses some anxiety issues. Um, again, probably mild anxiety, mild to moderate anxiety for adults. Those are two good resources I'd, I'd recommend. Awesome. No, it's, it, I think people are, this is, you know, a first step, but there's many, many steps into, you know, healthy, healthy marriages. So really, really good. Joan, last thing, is there anything that you would just want to add in that you were like, oh, I should have, or I could have, or anything that I missed that you just want to want to add? Well, I would, I would just add this one last finding in this study done by Judith Wallerstein some time ago. She did a study on happiness in marriage. 
And she interviewed couples, over 50 couples, over who had been married for differing amounts of time, up to four decades. They were all from a variety of backgrounds. They varied economically, culturally, um, educationally. And the question they were asked was, what makes a marriage happy? And the conclusion from every single interview done with these couples was very straightforward. She found that everyone, without exception, said that happiness in marriage meant feeling respected and cherished. So every individual felt that they were central to their partner's world, and they believed that creating a marriage and family was the singular um, most important thing that they did in their life. And then she went on um, just to give a few more more facts about that. But the question I would leave leave with your listeners is, um, do you want a happy marriage? So if you do, does your partner know that you respect them? And do they know that you cherish them? And if they don't, what can you do to change that? Powerful. Great questions. Joan, thank you so much for your time. I know it's been rich uh, and I know that this will help people. So thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for this afternoon. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Chris. Blessings to you and your congregation and family. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening and downloading this week's KAC podcast. Check back weekly to hear more from Pastor Chris as he continues to explore relevant topics with guests and experts. If you have any questions or thoughts out of today's conversation, certainly let us know. We want to hear from you. You can email info at camloopsalliance.com or text at 778-860-7957. Make sure to tune in next week as Chris interviews Mario Borba. He's the managing director of the Mustard Seed in Kamloops. Mario has a bachelor's degree in psychology focused on pastoral counseling. He was a missionary and youth pastor prior to work as basic services manager for the Mustard Seed in Edmonton. In August 2019, he was offered the position as managing director of the Mustard Seed Operations in Kamloops. You can look forward to an insightful conversation on the Mustard Seed's mission and needs during this global pandemic. Thanks again for joining us. We look forward to connecting again with you next week here on the KAC Podcast and online for our weekend gatherings. Have a great week.